Okay, well, we're going to make a start. I know it's a very dangerous food table today because there's cakes, so... <laughs> so we are... Um, we're going to teach over the next few weeks really um, about the kind of church that we feel called to be. So for those of you who don't know so much about our history, we've, this church has only really existed for the last kind of year and a half. So we are planting a church together. And when you go through those kind of moments, it's really good to clarify, well, what kind of church are we? So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. And I want to begin really just by giving you a little bit of a background story for myself and Sarah. Sarah is not here yet. She will be here. She's just flown in from the UK, so you'll see her in a while, I suspect. Uh, Some of you will know this story, but others it might be completely new. So September 2021, which is now almost, I guess, two and a half years ago, uh, myself and Sarah and two of our kids, we have four kids, two of them are older and they're in the UK still, two are with us, uh, moved to the Netherlands. And uh, we came because uh, we knew God had spoken to us about coming. Now, we'd lived in London. I'm from the UK. We'd lived in London for, oh gosh, 25 years. Uh, we'd lived kind of, in, kind of in the same area, gone to the same church. I'd been on the leadership team of that church for 25 years. We were absolutely invested there. And then we went through a season where we just knew God spoke to us. And um, God speaks to us, I think, all the time if we're listening But there are also certain pivotal moments in your life you'll discover where there are seasons of change. And you need to be attentive. What is God saying to me in this particular season? They don't come along all the time, thankfully, because they're quite exhausting. But we went through one of those seasons where we knew God spoke to us about leaving where we were and going somewhere new. Now, we had, just so you know, it wasn't on our radar to move abroad. It wasn't on our radar to plant a church. We had thought we'd be somewhere in the south of England, near our family, um, somewhere probably in a church which was established. Uh, I think Sarah's probably told you, she even prayed, God give us a place where we can see hills. (laughs) It was hilarious. So literally everything we prayed, God went, no, 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 no. And he brought us here and we're very grateful. But when you go through that process... It's very clarifying in terms of, well, what do I actually believe? Because you feel God speaking to you, but then you have to choose whether you're going to do anything about it. Am I actually going to act on what God is saying? And it's very clarifying in terms of, well, do I believe it? Are we going to choose for us? This this was the choice. Are we going to choose to be comfortable and familiar with where we are? Or do we believe what we say we believe? You know, I preached in the church for 20 years and I was like, Okay, I really got to live what I'm preaching. Do you believe God has good things for us, that he cares for us, that he'll provide for us, that he will be true to his word? Or would I rather live a safe life? <laughs> Part of me would. Or am I going to stake everything on what I believe? It's very clarifying because those are the questions. Sometimes we live with a foot in both camps, right? Well, I'll trust God here, but really I'll kind of do my own thing over here. You know, when it comes to this part of life, I'm happy to trust God, but really... Over here, no, it's mine. And these moments really kind of make you, they clarify, okay, do I believe it or not? Am I all in or not? And we got to the point where we're like, okay, God, we're we're all in. So they are very clarifying moments. And similarly, I would say, here we are two and a half years into living in the Netherlands, I guess a year and a half in as a church community. There are kind of clarifying moments as a church community. Clarity is very helpful. 
you know, as we plant a church together, what kind of church do we feel God is calling us to be? Who are we called to be as a people? Uh, years ago, when I was, I was probably about 10 years old, we went on a family holiday to Austria. We went to somewhere called Kitzbühel. Anybody ever been to somewhere called Kitzbühel? I mentioned the word Kitzbühel, people throw things. So don't mention Kitzbühel because things get thrown around in this church. So Kitzbühel's in the Alps in Austria, and we, went, we were staying in this... <laughs> no one noticed Mark. It was completely like, no one noticed Mark. Yeah, it wasn't me. Um, so we were staying in this little hotel place, and I remember, like, we're at the table... Uh, having dinner and uh, it got to dessert time and they kind of brought this ice cream and I was way ahead of my family in terms of eating so I kind of got into mine first and I remember jumping in and thinking this is nice this is nice this is nice and you kind of keep eating and then I remember hitting the bottom of whatever was the bottom of this ice cream and I remember experiencing this taste that I had never experienced before as a 10 year old and I was like this is not nice I don't know (laughs) what it is at the bottom of this ice cream but I really don't like it I can't quite remember the details, but I'm sure I pulled a face. I'm pretty certain I said some stuff, and I'm pretty certain I pushed it away. Now, my dad, who probably, hopefully, you'll meet my dad because he's going to come and visit in a few weeks' time. My dad had this saying in our family where he, my dad was, seemed to be able to eat anything. You know, as a kid, I was just, he could eat anything. But I, actually, what I realized when I was older, he ate anything because he, he got to choose what he wanted to eat. As a kid, you just got what you were given. But he was like... He had this phrase that we used to tease him about where he'd say, it's nothing objectionable. There's nothing objectionable. Which is not exactly a great recommendation for some food, is it? It's nothing objectionable. And I'm thinking, no, there definitely is something objectionable in this ice cream, right? So I'm like pushing this thing away. And my dad was not very impressed with me. But later on, he had his ice cream and he got to the bottom of his ice cream and he discovered the taste as well. And I think what it was, it was some kind of alcohol that as a 10-year-old I had never experienced before in my life, okay? The point is, is that it looked very familiar. It all looked very familiar. I jumped in and I liked it. But when I got to the bottom of it, I'm like, oh, this is not what I anticipated. And churches can be a little bit like that. Lots of churches look very similar. They can have very similar format. They can use similar songs. But actually underneath, they can operate in very different ways and believe quite different things. So when you join a church or when you get involved in a group of people, a community of faith, it's very important to go, help me understand what you actually believe, how you actually operate. And that's not a comment on right or wrong or what's good and what isn't. It's simply that churches can look the same, but they're not necessarily the same underneath. So one of the reasons we want to do this is we want to think it's really important as a people. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is why we believe that. We're not perfect. We don't get everything right. But this is what we're going for. And that's what this kind of whole next few weeks is about. And so we called this little series, What Kind of People? Question mark. What kind of people are we? What kind of people do we feel called to as we plant this church? And the hope is we're going to articulate, describe, paint some kind of picture of that. Because clarity is key, I think. What do we believe about the church, about community, about justice, about mercy? What do we believe about the city, about the gospel, about culture? What kind of people is, do we feel God is calling us to be? So we're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 2. And if you know anything about the book of Acts, the book of Acts is basically the story of the birthing of the church, the Holy Spirit being poured out, and Jesus' mission being extended across the known world. And you get this birthing of the church across uh, from Jerusalem out. And Acts chapter 2, 
you get this incredible picture of what the early church looked like. And we're going to read five verses, and we're going to preach through this verse. I actually, we're going to use this verse, if you like, as the springboard over the next four or five weeks. So we're going to look at it quite a lot. And this is what it says, Acts 2, verse 42, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this is a description of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, uh, I don't know if you've been to a wedding recently, and I, and I know different cultures do weddings differently, right? But in the UK, actually, I prefer the way other cultures do weddings, by the way. <laughs> but in the UK, typically British weddings are, there's the service, there's a reception, like with a meal and speeches, and then there's, often there's a party in the evening. Now, if you're on the A-list invitees, you get invited to the service and the reception and the party. If you're more on the B-list... You get invited to the, you're not actually given a card saying you're the B-lister, but you're invited to the service and the party. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because you can't have all the numbers necessarily, but I know other cultures are like, everybody comes to everything, which I personally prefer. But I remember, um, I actually have been to weddings where we've been invited to the reception and other people who thought they were invited to the reception have turned up looking for their place on the table and their name's not there. And so they made space for them. Even They never quite worked out that their name tag wasn't there because they weren't actually invited to the afternoon. But anyway, I, I digress. When you go to a wedding like that, there's often lots of tables in the UK and there's a dinner and there's, it's all very nice. Um, but there's often a certain table where everybody seems to be having the best time. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those moments, yeah? So you're sitting at your table, and about two tables, your table then, yeah. About two tables away is that they're laughing, they're having a great time, they all look amazing, they're all beautiful people. And you're sitting at your table going, I want to be on that table. (laughs) Typically, Sarah and I are placed on the table with the stragglers. You know, like, there's Uncle Bob, who doesn't... Uncle Bob doesn't talk to anyone, so I get placed next to Uncle Bob and I have two hours of trying to extract conversation from Uncle Bob. That's typically because they're like, oh, Phil and Sarah will chat to people, but but two tables away is the table you want to be on because they look like they're having the best time with Lena and Jamili, right? And it's funny because when I read this passage this week, thinking about this morning, I'm thinking, oh, that reminds me of that because you read this description and you kind of go, wow, I want to be on that table. That sounds amazing. I mean, it's just this extraordinary picture of a vibrant community. You know, they're, they're generous, they're authentic, they're clear, they're committed, they're vibrant, they're grateful, they're kind, they're bold, they're positive, it's exciting. There's something absolutely full of life about this description of the church. Now, there is a bit of a health warning here because you can read Acts 2 and go, well, it's utopia, but it wasn't utopia. Because if you read Acts 5, if you know anything about the story about Ananias and Sapphira, you'll find there were people in the community who were just as kind of, you know, broken as we all are, just as conflicted as we can be. And that story is basically people who were like lying about their stuff, lying that they'd given things when they hadn't, 
And it, if you know the story, it doesn't go very well for them. So you might want to read Acts 5 on another occasion. So don't read these passages and get it wrong and think, well, that's just perfect church. Perfect church doesn't exist. Because if it did, none of us would ever be in them. Okay? Yeah? Rick Warren, who leads a big church in the States called Saddleback, says, in every church there are called, he calls them EGR. It's a little bit, it's a little bit unkind. EGR people. Extra grace required people. Okay? He said, if you go to a small group, you look around the room and you try and work out who the EGR people are, right? He said, if you look around and you can't work out who they are, it's probably you. Okay? Because the truth is... We are all, we are all a bit EGR, all of us, okay, amen. The church is made up of people who are a bit broken. The gospel is for people who are a bit broken. The gospel is for people who acknowledge that they're broken. So actually that's all of us. John Ortberg, who is a writer I particularly like, wrote a book once about community and the title of the book is Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. That's true. We all have our stuff. We all have our slight oddities or our history or the things that have caused some brokenness in us. And the, so don't read Acts 2 and go, look, it's a perfect church. Perfect churches don't exist. Okay? They don't. There are probably healthier ones and more, less healthy ones, but the perfect church doesn't exist. But it is a very inspiring picture of what the church is called to be like. So that's what we're going to look, look at the next few weeks. We're going to have one week kind of off the series in the middle. But we're going to look at over four weeks. What kind of people are we called to be? Who, what are we aspiring to and why? And this first week, I want to talk about the sense that when I read that passage, what I get a sense of is that they are people, people. They are people, people. And what I mean by that is that they're not all raving extroverts, you know, and no one ever had their own space. And they're just always together all the time. I don't think that's what it, What I mean by that is they are the kind of church where people matter. People matter. And I say that because sometimes in churches in the West, I can only talk from the West because I've grown up in the West. Sometimes in churches, the truth is churches could get consumed with other things. And they become, if I'm honest, about other things. Sometimes they become about profile. They become about the size of your platform. They, about like there are just other things that we can get caught up about prestige and other things that begin with P. I don't I couldn't think of anything else. But actually, the church primarily is supposed to be a people where people are called together who join a people and in which people matter. It's about reaching people. It's about caring about people. It's about connecting people together, helping people find Jesus, forming a people. We are meant to be people, people, and God loves people. You just have to read through the Gospels. You see how Jesus treats people. Watch the way he treats people. He stops for people. He touches people that no one else would touch. He speaks to people no one else would speak to. He dignifies people that no one else would dignify. Lepers who were shunned, who had to ring a bell to say that they were coming through so everybody could get out of the way, Jesus touches them and heals them. Children are welcomed and encouraged Women, who were considered second class, are elevated and dignified and honoured. It's really important. We see, how does Jesus treat people? Prostitutes, habitual adulterers, thieves, collaborators, tax collectors. Jesus reaches out to all of them. He is utterly outrageous in the way he treats people. To the point that the religious people cannot cope with it. I'm not sure that we understand the shock of that. Okay? 
It's good to be shocked sometimes. Jesus reaches people, that, the religious people, and we're the religious people in this context, who are, are like, whoa. And that's what you see. They're people, people. And if you read this passage, you think, what are they like? If you were to cut them open and go, what are they like? Well, they care about people. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So just in the next like, time remaining, I just want to pull out some aspects of what it means for a, a church to be about people. What are some of the things which, if you like, are products of that or some of the causes of that? What are, the, what are the values which matter within that? What are the things which help create that? And I want to just pull out a few things, I think about five of them. The first one is this. The author Luke describes the church as being together. They were all together. They knew each other. They are deeply committed to one another. They care for one another. They are known and they know. They are together. Now, somewhere in the West, again, I don't know so much about the rest of Somewhere in the West, the church lost its way in terms of what church is. In other words, church became a building. And we would go to church for a moment, typically a Sunday morning. We're here in a building, not a normal church building, but a building. And we're coming together for a moment. So there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's an important part of being church. But it's, you boil it down to it's a building at a moment where you miss what the church is called to be. It's not just a building and it's not a moment, but that's what it became. It became a building and a moment. You went on a special day you went to a special person to get something. That's how people thought of church. Actually, the church is a people called together amongst which God dwells. God is always after a people. You read through the Old Testament, God is calling a people out of slavery together and he's going to dwell amongst them by his presence. That's why when the Israelites were going through the desert, he goes, I'm going to put a tabernacle. I'm going to put literally a tent in the middle of your camp. All your tents are to face into the middle and I will tabernacle amongst you. And that's why in John 1, it says Jesus came and dwelt. That word dwelt was to tabernacle. I am going to be in the middle of you. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like a little thing. It's one of the reasons we don't do chairs in rows here because we want to do something together. We're gathering together to him. So God was always after a people, people who are known and who know a place where we are supported and loved, but a place where we support and love others. And that's why in Corinthians, Paul says, you're a body, many members, you're a body that works together. It's a place, in other words, of relationships, friendships and connections. And we could spend weeks teaching this out of the Bible, but it's clear in the Bible. That's what we're called to be. And people need people. We need each other. Okay, Genesis, you just read creation you'll see immediately that every day God reflects on creation, says it's good. He gets to one day, says it's not good. What does he say it's not good about? What's not good is man to be alone. So we are made to know God and be in relationship with him, but we're also made to know each other. It's not good to be alone. So God calls people to a people. And that's why it makes no sense being a Christian on your own. You have to be joined to a people. So if you're a Christian here, find a church. It doesn't have to be this one. It could be another one, that's fine. But find a people to be part of. Because you don't really make it on your own. You can survive just about. And by the way, I've tried it. 
So I can talk you through my experience of it. When I was at university, I never found a church. I kind of limped as a Christian, conflicted. You need to find a people to be part of. So it's true theologically. I'd say it's true psychologically. If you've ever read any psychological stuff or know anything, there are lots of studies that say people need people. Uh, In the 20th century, uh, a psychologist called Abraham Maslow published a paper on what motivates human behavior. What makes us do what we do? And what he discovered is that after the basic human need for food and safety, physical survival, the most powerful driver for human behavior is the need to belong. Belonging is a very powerful driver and a very powerful experience. Scientifically, it's true. There are loads of studies about the impact of belonging to a people and the benefits of it. Several years ago, there was a research project in America And they called it uh, Community in Isolation. It was done by Harvard social scientists, and they tracked 7,000 people's lives over nine years in California. And this is what they found. The most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. They also discovered that people who had bad health habits, smoking, poor eating habits, but strong social ties tended to live significantly longer than those who had great great health habits, but were isolated. It's interesting, isn't it? Another study, this is less pleasant, this study, but the American Health Association injected 276 people with a virus that produces the common cold. So they injected them with this virus. They found that those who had strong relational connections did four times better in fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. They were less susceptible to cold. They shed less virus. They produce significantly less mucus, it's nice to know, isn't it, than those who are isolated. I I don't know what more reason you need to join a small group, by the way, okay? So you're less likely to die, you can eat bad food, and you'll have fewer colds, okay? Theologically, it's very clear. Psychologically, it's proven. Scientifically, it's proven. People need people. And if you're a Christian, you need a community of faith to flourish. It's just there in the Bible. It's everywhere. So they were together. Place, church should be a place where we know and are known, where we do not stand alone. We don't really make it on our own, and we weren't made to make it on our own. So they're together. Here's the second thing it clearly impacts their time. What you see is that people connected and committed to another one. They are gathering, meeting, praying, learning together in the homes and in temple courts. Now, Again, you've got to read Acts 2.42 with a little bit of like contextual understanding. Okay? I'm not sure that this is a blueprint to, therefore, you must meet with Christians every day. I'm not sure that's what it's teaching. If you read some of the commentators, they're going, well, there are reasons why they were doing that. Okay? But I think what is very clear is it impacts their time. They are committed to one another, and part of that is they have time together. Now, in the West... We are, compared with the world, financially rich. You may not feel financially rich here, but we are generally very financially rich compared with lots of parts of the world. But we are time poor. Right? We're financially rich, but we are time poor. So we are very fortunate in terms of the standard of living. We live in a very affluent country. Again, we are fortunate for the level of healthcare and all those things that creates for us. But we are time poor. And relationships require time. 
You cannot microwave a friendship, right? It just doesn't work. And relationships are so important, connection is so important, belonging is so important, that it requires choices about our time. Now, that is not meant to guilt trip anyone into going, you have to come to every prayer meeting and every group meeting. or anything. It's not supposed to be like that. It's simply saying to you, listen, if you want connection, you have to invest some time. That's how it works. And I have never met anybody ever who has regretted investing in relationships. I've met lots of people who have regretted investing in other things and giving their time to other things. But I've never met anybody. And the truth is, we do have some choices as to what we do with our time. So although we feel incredibly busy often, we are often choosing. So they give their time. They're connected. This is often, from my experience, the way it works, okay? Particularly when it comes to relationships and faith. When we prioritize relationships, connection in terms of faith, very often... They are, when you do that, you're far more likely to build friendships in terms of faith. When you have friendships, faith friendships, Christian friendships, you are far more likely, therefore, to find places where you can be open and vulnerable about the joys and the challenges of your life. When you are more open and vulnerable about the challenges and the joys of your life, my experience is you're far more likely to experience and encounter God in those moments through the people. In Western Christianity, we often think, I experience God just God to me. And you can experience God just in your life like that. That does happen. But actually, most of the New Testament talks about us experiencing God in the presence and the community of faith. So that's why Paul, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, he is talking to individuals, but often he's saying to the whole community, be full of the Spirit. We think individually in the West, but actually so often it's corporately. There are obviously appropriate levels of disclosure, okay? So let me just say, I'm not, exp- I'm not suggesting that we build relationships so we're just open about everything to everyone. That would be unwise and inappropriate. But I am saying that we have to connect into relationships in the faith, in the community of faith, to find people that we can be open with who can help us find Jesus in the midst of it all. Here's the next thing. They were generous people. It impacts their time and it impacts their money. Now, again, you've got to read Acts 2 with some understanding. I'm not sure this is some, it's not a description, I don't think, of like some kind of hippie commune where everything is in common and no one owns anything, okay? Because you, you can kind of like read this and go, okay, I've got to sell everything. I don't think he's saying that. Jesus says to, the, to one person, sell everything, to the rich. Why? Because finance, that, that was an idol in his life. He doesn't say that to everybody. So this is not a commune, okay? This is not where we don't own anything and everybody belongs to everyone. I'm not sure. It's not like some huge bring and share experience of all our stuff. You know, some of you know we bring and share lunches. It's not like that. But it is clearly a radically (laughs) generous people, okay? If I just live my life just for me, then all my stuff is mine. That's how I think of it. But if I understand that all I have has been given to me by him anyway, and I'm called into a people, that radically changes your view of your stuff. God gives me 
stuff, money, resources. Yes, for me to, to enjoy, to steward, but he gives it to me actually to bless other people. It clearly radically impacts their view of their money and of their possessions. So they give stuff away. Now, this is something that I've had to learn. Some of us have come from backgrounds where we have come from very generous backgrounds. So my wife, Sarah, has come from that background. I come from a little bit more of an affluent background. She comes from a less affluent, but she's grown up in this culture. Just, just give it away. Trust God, give it away. And I've had to learn that. So if you think, oh, I find that more difficult, I can understand because I've had to learn to do that. But I have found that God is no man's debtor. So I've said this before. We have learned, we believe biblically, that God has encouraged us to give finances to the church. We give at least 10% of our money away. We've always done that. Sometimes we've given over more like 20% of our money away. We feel God's called us to do that. We think if you're part of a community of faith, there is a financial aspect to that. It's part of your worship. It's part of discipling. It's part of learning to trust him. Because every time we give money away, it's going, I trust you more than I trust money. That's what it is. And also we've learned to budget money that we just give away to people. Generally, we just put it a certain amount away every month. We put it in our, an account and go, that is for somebody else. It's not for us. Because I know, I, know, I know a lot of people who are far more well off than I am. But when you think about the worldly terms, we are very well off. God has called us to use to steward our resources, not to try and keep them all. And to trust him that he'll be good to his word. Okay? So I want to... I want to challenge you. If you know that's a part of your life, you just don't do. You kind of like keep it. I want to encourage you. Actually, Jesus is calling you into a very radically generous lifestyle. Okay? And I want to encourage you to do it. Trust him in it. Trust him that actually he will look after you. Okay? And that is regardless of your income level. Okay? Okay, you might think, well, I just, I'm just hardly earn anything. Well, then start there. Give a percentage, a small amount away each month, because he will look after you. This church is radically generous. Now, let's just say, I think our church is very generous. I want to say that to you. So this is, not a, this is just what I see here. Who do we want to be? I think we want to be a radically generous people. All right? Actually, there's great joy in that. So, they break bread together. There's so much we could say about this, okay? But just one thing I want to say, and we're going to break bread in a little while. When you break bread, one of the things we're doing is we're remembering Jesus. We're remembering the cross. We're remembering what he's done for us, how he's opened a way for us to come to the Father. Why did they break bread together so much? Why is Luke recording that? Well, I think one of the reasons is, well, because they did it, because Jesus says, remember me, do this in remembrance. But I think also it is representative of the fact that they understood when they are together, there is something unique about meeting God in their midst. If you want to grow as a believer, okay, if you want to meet God, if you want to encounter him, then it happens primarily in the midst of his people. Dallas Willard once said this, personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his presence more than scattered individuals. C.S. Lewis put it like this, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works in us through each other. And if you've come here regularly, you'll know that you've probably heard me say this before. Pretty much every exaltation in terms of growth as a Christian in the New Testament 
is in the context of one anothering. Okay? That's not to say we can't grow and God can't speak to us on our own. He, he speaks to me on my own. But I know that this is, if you like, the greenhouse place for growth in the church, in the midst of relationships. Okay, that's how he works. Jesus says, I tell you, Matthew 18, that if two, when you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. In other words, Jesus is saying there's something about you being together which is dynamic in terms of faith and his presence in a way that's not on your own, okay? So they break bread together because they know there's something about the presence and the power of Jesus when we're together, okay? And here's the last, and this is actually in one way is probably my favorite thing. I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite thing, but here we go, here's my favorite thing. I just thought this was so nice. It says, they were glad. They were glad. They, they give some money. They give their stuff away. They, have, they, they invest a lot of time with one another. There are clearly some you know, ups and downs and some challenges. It's not like perfect. But there's something about it where they go, they were just glad. There's, there's a gratefulness about it. There's a, there's a kind of a lack of conflict. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation in your life where you're conflicted. You're a Christian maybe, but you're living a lifestyle that's not in line with your faith. And it is not a comfortable place to be. You're conflicted. You're living a divided life. Okay, it's not good news for your own heart. Right? But you get this sense here that they are absolutely clear. This is what we're about. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I'm called to. These are the people I'm going to gather with. It's clear. And we're going. And you get this sense. It's just, they're just grateful. <laughs> amongst the challenges, amongst the difficulties, amongst the storms, in the good times, they're like, there's... They're, they're grateful. They are the table at the wedding that we would all like to be sitting on. Okay? <coughs> grateful for what God had done. Grateful for what he was doing. Grateful for each other. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. And here's what's really interesting, I think. Off the back of that, Luke says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's like this little throwaway. You know, just, like, just, he just added to them. <coughs> It's like, why? Well, there's all sorts of reasons you can ask, but partly because I think it's such an attractive thing that Jesus just does this work of just drawing people into it because we all want to get on that table. That's, I mean, in, in church leadership, there's a big emphasis often, often on church growth, and I've been in a church which has grown exponentially, and I was very grateful for it. But sometimes growth is not the thing to focus on. The thing to focus on is health. Mm. Because healthy things grow. Mm. This is a fabulous picture of a healthy church. They're generous. They're good with their time. They, they take the word seriously. They enjoy the presence of God. They enjoy each other. There's friendship, connection, authenticity. And they're grateful. It's healthy. And healthy things grow. Right? The Lord adds to them. People matter. People matter to Jesus. And they matter to us. And that's part of what we want to be as a community. Whatever stage, whether we're 40 people or 400 people, we want this to be a place where people matter. So let's pray. Guys, can you come and just lead us in a song? And um, 